Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. February 6, 2023, to be Shvat, the 15th day of Shvat, 5783. For the first and probably only time, I am doing a podcast from Egypt, currently in Luxor, finishing a fabulous 10-day tour with the person who's sitting right next to me, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman, who I know that many of you heard my podcast. Actually, I think we did a couple of them, a webinar and a podcast over the last couple of years on his book, Anima Amin. And, uh, and now we did the tour. We, uh, we made it three-dimensional. So first of all, Rabbi Berman, thank you so much for joining me. Okay. And greetings um, to all our friends, uh, wherever they might be. All right. So I apologize for the noise. We're sitting in a hotel lobby. It's the quietest place that we could find. We're doing our best. It's a busy place. We're both a little bit tired because we got up like at 3.30 this morning to go on a hot air balloon ride at sunrise, which was totally wild. Your first time? My first time. Yeah. yeah. Normally I say, Loba uh, Right. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not in the heavens, as, as Shem says about the Torah, but uh, exactly. Yeah. So to, to see the Valley of the Kings and the green of the Nile and, and uh, the blue of the Nile and the green of what's growing here and fly over the palm trees and land in a sugarcane patch. Uh, was really something bit extra special. But the main reason, of course, that we're doing this interview is to talk about, um, well, the, the title of this tour uh, was in the footsteps of the Exodus and the footsteps of our forefathers. And as many of you know, um, we, those of us who believe in the historicity of the Bible are coming up against not a few people who are saying that the stories are sweet and they're nice, but they didn't actually happen. And, uh, and what Rabbi Dr. Berman has been doing, of course, in his book, Anima Amin, who, that I hope many of you have read, is saying that it's almost impossible to say that we weren't here in Egypt, which after spending a week here, I'm going to have to agree with. So what are your, um, Dr. Berman, what are your main points when, when the places that we went to, um, Tanakh in hand, to show that, uh, that we were once here, that the people of Israel were here and have a context of Egypt in our minds um, when, you know, when we're doing, when we're reading and learning the Torah. Right. So I, I think it's primarily that just, you know, the more you learn about ancient Egypt, the more you see how, how infused the Torah is with the familiarity with the culture here. It can be from small things, like just things like something that I learned today, that our, our uh, word for tower, Migdal, I always thought it just comes from gadol, big. Uh, it's actually an Egyptian word, Egyptian word for tower. And then you see that so many names that, uh, that, that we're familiar with as Jewish names are in fact Egyptian names, like Miriam and Inchas. And seeing so many words that are, that are identified with the uh, uh, materials of the Mishkan are Egyptian. And even the measurements that we use, like Zeret, which is a finger length, and Ama, which is a cubit and Ifa, which is a certain weight. All of these are Egyptian words. And on and on, the, the, the saturation of familiarity with the Egyptian culture is where it starts. But where it really, really becomes most compelling is where we see that the Torah is familiar and is in polemical discourse with larger ideas that you cannot know about unless you're here. Uh, and that's particularly um, the writings of, of uh, Ramses II, known as Ramses the Great, and about his greatest achievement, uh, the Battle of Kadesh, which is uh, 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 1274 BCE, against the Hittite Empire on the banks of the Orontes River. 
a place called Kadesh, which is modern, the modern-day border between Lebanon and Syria. And he has extensive writings about his supposedly enormous victory there. And you can see how the story of the Exodus, especially in uh, Exodus chapters 14 and 15, chapter 15 is known to us as Shirat Hayam, the Song of Moses, uh, the Song of the Sea, rather, uh, that we recite in the, the daily Shachari service, uh, seems to be designing the story, the events actually happen in a way that, that closely hues to the various events and even sometimes words and phrases uh, of those great inscriptions, as if to say that uh, uh, Kaddish Baruch was out pharaohing the pharaoh. This is a, a way of stealing the thunder, the propaganda of Egyptians and to use them, to use it to uh, uh, engage in cultural warfare back at them. Um, uh, it's kind of something that we've seen in our own time here in Israel. Uh, in 2014, Hamas uh, during the Tsuketan, uh, what was Tsuketan? I forgot what that was called. Uh, yeah, I forgot what it's called Killer, in English. Edge, Edge, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That last major flare up with, with, uh, with the Gaza Strip, uh, Hamas put out a propaganda video in Hebrew, in Hebrew, in which their fighters come popping out of you know attack tunnels and shooting in all directions and taking mock prisoners. And uh, the song was 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 set to you know jingoistic uh, Arabic music, but mm-hmm. the words were in Hebrew. Puma rise and, and attack. And Israelis took that song and made a whole competition on YouTube as to who could who could jazz it up the most. And it was it was re- reproduced in Israel in a reggae form and in a, a staccato form mm-hmm. and on and on. So I think that we, you know, when you see that, that the Torah is engaged, and when I say that it's engaging in polemical discourse with this particular composition, I'm talking about phrases like, um, you consume your enemy like chaff, which appears in no other uh, 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 military, it's not, it's not a military term or, or, used to dis- or, or used to describe military power in any other any other culture of the ancient Near East, or just the idea of troops singing a song of praise for their uh, for their for their victorious uh, uh, monarch after he after after the enemy is is vanquished, and again a whole slew of similar terms that we have in the Torah. Uh, to, to demonstrate, seems to demonstrate that the Kodesh Baruch is is higher than the Pharaohs. This was the Torah's way in which to communicate this, because unlike everything that you and I have seen this week, literally seen, amazing. it's on the wall, yeah. in full color. The archaeology here is very different than what we have in Israel. Yes. In Israel, of course, we have, you know, every footstep is, is a site that's important to us. But the fact of the matter is, is that the archaeological remains require some vivid imagination. Yes, very life. paltry. And here, you don't need any imagination at all. You just look at the walls, and have the inscriptions read for you, and it's all right there, perfectly preserved, seemingly. Um, um, and so it seems as though this was the Torah's way for God, that unlike the gods that they may have been familiar with here, they could not see, they could not hear, uh, but they could hear about his actions. Mm-hmm. The best way to portray his actions and his greatness was to take the propaganda of the pharaohs and to show that Hashem is one much higher. So, I mean, there were a couple of points I... I- guess you could call them theological points, the temples that we went into that are beyond magnificent. I mean, you walk into these places and the hieroglyphics and just pillar after pillar and room after room. I mean, it it just strikes you what an amazing civilization this was, how huge, how strong, and and very intimidating, how 
you can understand why they thought that they would be here forever. Right. I mean, all this tremendous effort yeah, of I mean, we saw a statue of today of, of Francis II. <laughs> right. That when it was standing, the guy who's a very authoritative uh, uh, he figure said that it probably weighed 1,200 tons. Right. Leaving aside how they moved it from where we saw in Aswan that yeah. had to get it here right. altogether right. Right. and how they were able to do that. Right. Right. Just um, about temples, like one of the, this, this is not only a, a, a trip that I think validates uh, our, our uh, corroborates our, our Amuna in the, uh, our belief in the, uh, that there was, that Amisrael were slaves in Egypt and they were liberated from there. But I think it also demonstrates some mighty theological switches that the Torah makes. Um, as we move through these really incredibly majestic and enormous temple structures, you read the, the, the dimensions of Shlomo's Beit HaMikdash, and it's minuscule relative yeah, to these. Really? Uh, which, on, uh, at first blush, kind of leaves one saying, oh, gosh, you know, we didn't have, I mean, our Beit HaMikdash should be the biggest and, and, and brightest. And, and so the answer to that is that, is that well, we really see something that's, that's incredibly important. And revolutionary, and that is the yes, the Beit Hamikdash that that the Navi describes and says from the Rambam in the Book of Kings. Indeed, is is resplendent. Well, yeah. no, no, no. Its sizes are. Mm-hmm. You know, it has its gold here and there. Mm-hmm. Yes, it certainly does. Um, but it is not of the gargantuan size, you know, of many football fields that some of these some of these uh, uh, temples are. And 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 these temples, these gargantuan temples, are furthermore, are surrounded by gargantuan storehouse complexes of mud bricks right. uh, uh, that were used to store seemingly seemingly infinite quality quantities of grain and, and perhaps animals as well, all of which demonstrates that when you pour in an enormous amount of human labor and human treasure to building temples and massive storehouses and fill them, all that money could be going to other uses. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that the Torah uh, uh, is modest in this regard. We know that the the number of sacrifices that the Torah and Sefer Vayikram seems to, uh, to to legislate to mandate for us are, are minuscule relative to the things we see reported in temples all across the ancient Near East and what we can see with our own eyes here. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a desire that of a desire to uh, let the money trickle down to the common people rather than making all human effort and all human treasure essentially property of the kings and the temples. You also noted that the Torah delineates what we are supposed to bring as sacrifices. Right, so right. The, the priest can't suddenly say, no, no, I meant two whole cows. Right, exactly. And as we get to say, we kind of go, oh gosh, how are we going to get through this safe? Right, after what, all what, the fun stories. What are we going to say, <laughs> say at the Shabbos table? And, you know, one, there's like one massive lesson that comes out of Sefer Vayikra, and that is this, is, this is what you are obligated to bring. This and no more. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's written down, and it's publicized amongst the people, and this prevents priests from ever saying, Kohani, from ever saying to the, the common people, listen, if you want to get close to God, if you want to be redeemed, if you want to achieve atonement, well, then you better pay some more. And after all, we are the priests and we know. We, we have the dark secrets mm-hmm. in our pockets and you don't. No, it's all out there in the public. Mm-hmm. Sefer Vayikra puts the tax, the tax code 
on the table for everyone to see. Well, the Torah seems to limit the power of the great people in a way that when you see here, you can understand why. And, you know, we went into these temples. It's not something that I understood until I was standing in them. They were built to show the relationship between the Pharaoh and God. Right. They weren't built for the common person to right, see. Right, right, right. This is important to understand. We've all seen, I'm sure, if, if we haven't visited Egypt, we've certainly seen photographs of these, you know, colossi outside the temples. Wow. And you look at that and you say, well, that, that's kind of like a, a dedication plaque. You know, instead of saying donated by, you know, Fred and Wanda Silverstein or whatever. <laughs> apologies if Fred and Wanda Silverstein. They're listening. The big philanthropists. You know, of, 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 you know of, of Brooklyn, New York or something. Uh, it's all we have a, dedica a, de a dedicatory statue. No, it's not that. It's not just that he built it. It's that the whole temple is a celebration of the connection between the gods and the kings. Mm -hmm. The things that the, that the kings did for the gods and the things that the gods did for the kings. And along comes the Torah and wipes out that script and says, let's start this all over. This is not about the relationship between the gods and the kings. In fact, the king, according to the Torah, has no function or role anywhere, not in building the Bet Midash, not in serving the Bet Midash. Rather, it's what Sefer Devarim says, you shall come here, you shall bring your, 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 your devotion to me. And you shall rejoice together with your God. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the Bet Midash becomes, becomes it, it's, a, it's not just a, political, a religious statement. It's a political statement. What's important to God is the common people. Right. And not just the king. Right. I mean, I mean, you see that so strongly here, because as you said, it, they are so intimidating, these temples. And, and if you haven't gone to Egypt and you can get here somehow, it, and this is after so much has been destroyed. You know, that we were seeing these temples that had been covered with mud up until a few decades right. ago, where there were neighborhoods inside them. The Nile had flooded and they'd filled up. There's a mosque inside one of the greatest temples inside Luxor, you know, because they were sitting there. So I can only imagine that we know that different kings destroyed other kings things. I can only imagine what it was like here in its heyday. But it makes you realize what a miracle it is that we got out of here also. Sure. You know, I mean, this is the the power of the ancient world. But what was so fascinating is also to see the certain references that the Bible has, for example, the Ark of the Covenant and to go somewhere and see. I mean, maybe you could talk about the poles underneath the retractable poles for, for yeah, listeners. Know, one of the nice things about uh, learning about this culture and seeing it visually also is that it, it, it empowers you to uh, um understand certain passages in the Torah anew and in a clearer way. There is mm -hmm. an act of Kiyom here, a fulfillment of Tamil Torah, simply learning the Torah. Um, uh, there's a, a bit of a tension between two passages concerning the Ark of the Covenant about what exactly happens with these poles, because in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, it says that the poles can't be taken out, and in the book of Numbers, when it comes time for the Levites to transport the, uh, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, it says, and they should, seems to be Samu Badab, which most, most, most would probably translate at first blush, they should put in, insert uh, the poles. So how can you put in poles if they were never to come out? And there are various approaches within, within, uh, within the classical uh, rabbinic commentators. And when you see ancient Egyptian chests that had poles, and where they're situated, and how the, 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 the loops work, uh, uh, especially things that come from uh, the, the, the tomb of, of King Tut, right. where there were 5,800 artifacts, amongst them several chests that had holes for, for carrying them. Uh, 
those psukim now become clear. Right. Not getting into the visual details, but yeah, there's 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 scholars that have used that as a way of understanding uh, these verses. There was also what you were teaching us about the difference between a snake and a crocodile. Okay. There seems to be right. maybe yeah. maybe talk about that for a minute. Okay, yes. Yeah. So just quickly, so another passage where uh, our commentators uh, uh, kind of uh, at odds with each other as to how to make sense of a certain tension within the verses. At, at the burning bush, Moses is told to take his staff and to cast it down, that it should become a serpent or a snake, uh, a nachash. And then, in, and, and he's told also that he needs to take this this sign or wonder together with a, a couple of others and go and perform them before Pharaoh uh, as the kind of the opening gambit of uh, of getting the Israel out of out of Egypt. But then, in, in, in chapter seven, when Moses when Moses appears before Pharaoh for the first time, and God says, "Well, tell Aaron to cast down his his his, uh, his staff, and it will become a tanin, a, uh, a crocodile." Uh, so the question is, if, if Moses was told to cast down his staff, that it should become a snake, and that's what he's supposed to bring to, to Pharaoh, then why why does why does God say in chapter seven, throw down the staff that it should become a crocodile? Right. It seems to be inconsistent here. Uh, and again, we saw line drawings or drawings on the inside of tombs that helped us make, make sense of what might be going on here. Right, the in combo. Fact, yeah, in fact, ju justifying what one of the Farshim say. So one of the tombs that we went into, the, of the vizier, I forgot his name, Wichmos? Wichmir? Wichmir. And on the walls, it shows his accomplishments in his lifetime. Right. And you walk around there, and you can't help but think of Joseph, of Yosef. You right. know, because right. it has him collecting weed right. from people right. and doing probably all that. Probably had a highly similar right. office. Right. So then you read the Bible about how Moses goes, you know, they take Joseph's bones out with them from Egypt and, of course, eventually bury them in Shechem when we come into the land of Israel. Right. I think to myself, is this what it looked like? Like Moshe comes into something just like this and this is where Joseph's buried? Because when he's buried, he's he's a very esteemed person in yeah. Egypt, and maybe that's what they did for him. So, I mean, I all I can say is that I, I, I will not look at the Tanakh the same way. I will not be able to guide the same way as I did before this week, because it is just illuminated for me um, in ancient worlds that, you know, the guides in Israel, we say that we're, we're dealing with such ancient things. You know, people come from Europe, people come from America, everything's... 200, 400, 900 years old, if you live, you know, in medieval France or something, you live in a village. And, but I was humbled here in Egypt because this is even, you know, before our history in the land of Israel. Right. The pyramids it's, it's are the all It's yeah. unbelievable, really, to see Giza and to see some of these pyramids, try and figure out how they built them. It's, uh, it's really something else. It's really, I don't know if there's another place in the world that we can, well, Maybe Iraq and maybe those places, but those are kind of off limits right now limits to see ancient civilizations. State, state preservation is right, right. Um, but then again, the, the juxtaposition between the daily world right now in Egypt and what it once was, um, and you see, no is, is not all as exciting, but it's also, I mean, this was once the breadbasket of the world. We see it not just in the biblical sources, but in others, and now they're struggling to feed their own people. And you just, you know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you need good leadership, but you need fair leadership. Right. And that, that's really something that comes out. And that's definitely a Torah message. Right. Um, so this was really, I want to thank you. This was really, an, really an amazing tour. And, uh, and I just 
you know, I mean, we talk about biblical criticism and the people who say it never happened and how you can show that it did. But how about the other side of things? I mean, how about the more um, Jews, who, Jews and Christians who've learned things in a way that would say that everything that's in the Bible was not affected by any other civilization. You know, God said how to build the Ark of the Covenant, right? right? So how do you, that's maybe the opposite side of the biblical criticism. Right, right. How do you right. deal I, with that? I, yeah, I know, I know that for a lot of uh, uh, people of, of good faith, yes. probably, probably Christians as well as Jews, though I, I hear it uh, more, from, more from the Jewish side, obviously. Uh, any comparison between our holy scriptures and uh, ancient culture is a little bit uh, blasphemous. Uh, yeah, <laughs> disarming. Wait, 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 wait. Mm. This is from God. Right. It should have its own language. It should have only its own reference points. It shouldn't mm-hmm. tie into what's going on, you know. And it shouldn't be that people who lived thousands of years ago would understand a certain word or a certain term or a certain illusion better than you and I today, because after all, scripture is eternal. Right. So I will say to this that that. Uh, you can demonstrably see within our tradition that the classic uh, 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 exegetes didn't understand this thing. They didn't assume that. They right and left. I mean, one point to literally dozens of places where they would say, well, this passage, well, that's probably the way they did things back then, or this probably was a certain custom back then. You hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be seen as, as, as uh, uh, deprecating the, the, eternal, the eternal nature of Scripture. Does the eternal, scripture is eternal. Does that mean that every single verse, every single illusion needs to be equally accessible to all people at all times? But that's impossible because all of us live and speak uh, in a certain place and time. What the eternal nature of scripture means is that it actually has, as the rabbis say, 70 panim, 70 different aspects or faces or lenses to which it can be observed. And its eternal nature comes from the fact that amongst those 70, it will manage to reach all, you know, to be, to be it should manage to, to, to reach all peoples at all times through one or more of those lenses. But yes, indeed, there will be certain aspects of the Torah that will make more sense to one generation than to another. I think that's certainly true today, irrespective of the issue of, of uh, uh, comparisons between the Torah and the ancient Greece. There are certain things that we appreciate today that maybe our forefathers 100 years ago and 200 years ago didn't appreciate it. So that's its eternal nature. And one of the advantages we have in this generation are the things that have been found written, you know, let's say Dead Sea Scrolls that have been found, papyri like on Elephantine Island on Yeb, which for me was one of the high points of this trip to actually walk on this island in the Nile where there was, it, it very much seems, some kind of form of a Jewish temple, some kind of altar, um, not clear, but a lot of a Geniza, really a collection of papyri were found there that talks about Passover, that talks yeah. about a week in the sun where you don't eat leavened bread and has what we call theophoric names, has names of letters back and forth to Jews with the name of God as we know it. Yeah. Something is going on on that island clearly. When it starts, when it ends, isn't clear. But there was some form of Jewish life there that, you know, and, yeah. and it just makes you wonder what else is out there that has been destroyed that we're right. never going to find. Or that could still be discovered. Or that could still be discovered. You know, unlike, I mean, in, 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 in Eretz Israel, in the land of Israel, there are relatively few places that have yet to be dug right. up, except for the Temple Mount, of course. Of course. You know, right. One but day. that's not the case here in Egypt. There are, you know, many... <laughs> We can actually point to certain fields where we are certain that there are, you know, the remains right. of great temples underneath them. Right. Um, you know, and those temples sometimes have, you know, stashes and caches of 
of papyri in them, mm-hmm. and inscriptions on them. Mm-hmm. And so the you know the we, we, we visited the Karnak Temple complex, which oh, is the largest the largest temple complex in the world, which they had been excavating for over 120 years, mm-hmm. and it continues even as we speak. Mm-hmm. So you know the potential for 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 remarkable revelations here is great. And then the hieroglyphics of names of places in Israel and corresponding to the yeah. to the Pharaoh Shishak coming yeah. in and the places that he destroyed. And I know those names and I know those places. Of course, I couldn't read them in the hieroglyphics, but we had someone who translated. And it's just, it's, it's really, it's seeing the Bible in a completely different language in a completely different setting. And uh, it was, it was just super exciting and definitely very much life-changing. And I think for everybody on the trip, uh, it gave a lot of food for thought in different ways, depending on what your background that's was. Right, that's right. And, uh, but that's also good. I think you took people out of their comfort zones this week, literally and physically. Uh, um, yeah, and that's so. a good thing. They're definitely physically. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a good thing. So um, I wish you continued forays back here and uh, uncovering other things and, and um, really illuminating the Torah in a different way, perhaps, than has been done in the past. And that's that's always a good thing. So, uh, okay. So, Eve Harrow with uh, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman. Thanks to Ben. And thank you to Tabitha. Again, sorry for all the background noise. It was the best that we could do. And wherever you are, I hope you are fine. And take care, everyone. And goodbye for now. Every Sunday, join the Land of Israel Fellowship. This live, interactive Zoom experience is hosted by Jeremy Gimpel and Ari Abramowitz, with participants from around the world. Enhance your faith, deepen your understanding, align your destiny with the Land of Israel. To join, visit thelandofisrael.com slash fellowship. Inviting the world to learn Torah from Judea, a new cycle, a new world.